1: Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts.
4: This is a CBC Podcast.
3: In 2011, the Arab Spring was sending shockwaves across the world. Amid many activists demanding change, one Syrian blogger wrote about her life as a lesbian in a country where homosexuality is illegal. Her blog, Gay Girl in Damascus, drew countless readers inspired by her search for freedom. But the blog wasn't all that it seemed. And a new podcast, Gay Girl Gone, reveals the startling truth. This is Podcast Playlist. I'm Leah Simone Bowen. Today we'll be talking about identity and the internet, the fall of Toys R Us, and a race around the world in 80 days. And those are just some of the best new podcasts that you can listen to this month. Of all the young revolutionaries in Syria during the Arab Spring, Amina was different. An out lesbian in a country where homosexuality is illegal, she documented her life on the blog Gay Girl in Damascus. Her candid posts attracted readers from around the world, and soon she had a wide following. One day, a post was published suggesting that Amina had been captured by Syria's secret police. Fearing for her life, her fans mobilized to track her down. But all was not what it seemed, and what Amina's fans discovered shocked them. The new podcast Gay Girl Gone untangles this story exploring the intersection between identity, politics, and cyberspace. The show launches on November 15th. It's hosted by Samira Moyadin, a multi-award-winning journalist, documentary maker, producer at CBC's The Current, as well as the host of Unforked. She joins me now. Welcome, Samira. Hi, how are you? I'm good. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. So how did you come across this story?
0: I mean, I I actually came across Amina back in 2011 on my own. I was reading this blog quite avidly and engaging with it. And then I sort of didn't think about it until back in April when we started to sort of look into what actually happened to Amina Araf, the gay girl in Damascus.
3: And can you tell us more about Amina, the blogger behind Gay Girl in Damascus? What was she like coming through as, to readers?
0: Yeah, I mean, on the blog, she was really fierce, um, powerful, sort of, and and fearless, you know. Um, I got to know the blog around the time of the Arab Spring, so this is back in 2011. And, you know, things sort of went from Tunisia to Egypt and Libya and then landed on, landed in Damascus, right, Mm -hmm. on, on Assad's doorstep. And that's when I started sort of reading Um, Gay Girl in Damascus, because it it was a blog that really was like no other, Mm -hmm. right? There were were a lot of blogs and activists blogging in Arabic at the time about the Arab Spring. But what was different about this one was that it was blogging in English. Hmm. And the person was in Syria. And Amina was half American, half Syrian, so this dual citizen, and she sort of occupied these two worlds, right? So very relatable um, to myself, Mm -hmm. right? Um, And so that's really what attracted me to the blog at first.
3: And at the time, what differences did you notice between how the blog was being covered in the news versus how people were discussing it online? Were were those two different perspectives? It's an interesting question because...
0: I think the reason that the blog, as I said, got taken up was mm-hmm. because it was writing in English. Mm-hmm. So news news outlets like The Guardian or CNN started covering the posts uh-huh. from the blog. Um, at one point, The Guardian even calls Amina the heroine of the Syrian revolution. And the way it was being talked about sort of outside of the media – was that people were going to the blog to get a different perspective, Mm. right? Because what Amina would do was sort of hone in on what was happening on the streets. But then at the same time, particularly in the queer community, you know, all of a sudden we had this unicorn, Mm -hmm. right? We were like, oh, my God, you know, um, we do exist, Mm -hmm. you know, and here's some proof of it, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And the interesting thing was that she was trying to straddle these two identities, right? At the same time. Um, so I think in that respect, both media outlets and people in the queer community and also just people who were, you know, the blogosphere was quite big in 2011, right? And the just media at the time, social media wasn't as wrought as it is today. Mm-hmm. We still believed it was a place for good, a place for change. And it was also a time when legacy media didn't really know how to interact with Mm. Social media, they were still trying to figure out. And the Arab Spring just sort of was playing out on Twitter at this time. Right. So it's an interesting time to go back to. I think a lot of people forget, you know, there was some hope with the Internet still.
3: Yeah, people, Twitter wasn't such a terrible place. (laughs) It was still Twitter. It was still Twitter. Yeah. So I know we don't want to give away really anything in this podcast, but I know eventually uh, a post is shared that says, Amina may be missing. And as this story unfolds, we just learned that maybe everything is not as it seems. How much can you tell us about that? How much can you tell us about this aspect?
0: Yeah, I mean, there was a huge mobilization that happened because we saw that this post went up on Gay Girl in Damascus on the blog from Amina's cousin Mm -hmm. saying Amina's been abducted by... Assad's secret police, um, uh, known as the Mahabharat. And so the, this massive movement started. There was a huge free Amina campaign. The uh, U.S. State Department even gets involved because, remember, she's a dual national. Mm-hmm. And so there's this huge mobilization. And people start looking to see, okay, where, where is she? How can we help her? And a lot of other organizations get involved, like human rights organizations, uh, journalist organizations, mm-hmm. and what they start to find out is not at all mm-hmm. what they were expecting to find out. Mm-hmm. And uh, again, sort of then, outcome these broader questions of like who gets taken up, who doesn't, you know, what voices get drowned out, what voices are sort of put on the front of the papers, and it's sort of these questions that we really grapple with in in the podcast.
3: And what do you hope listeners take away from this show? I think the biggest takeaway
0: for me, was that to look at sort of whose voices we're listening to. Mm -hmm. When we look at conflicts, particularly in the Middle East, what voices are getting drowned out and what voices are getting picked up and amplified. Mm -hmm. It really leaves you with a lot of questions rather than a lot of answers.
3: Mm -hmm. Well, let's listen to a clip now This is from episode one. One of the people you introduce us to is Sandra from Montreal. Can you tell us a bit about her?
0: Yeah, so Sandra is, uh, her name is Sandra Begaria. She, at the time, back in 2011, was living in Montreal and was sort of making her way through a dreary Montreal winter and comes across Amina on a dating site. And they just really formed this beautiful friendship and love affair and you know again sandra finds out that her lover has been abducted and so she really goes all in in trying to find amina Mm -hmm. and uh that's that's all i can tell you really
3: it's a really extraordinary uh story let's listen to this clip now this is sandra recalling how she first came into contact and fell in love with amina let's take a listen it's early 2011
0: Sandra Bagaria is just trying to get through another drawn-out, miserable Montreal winter.
5: You go out of work and it's, like, dark. You feel more isolated. It's the moment where you actually spend the most time with yourself.
0: Sandra's spending most of that time on the sofa, curled up under blankets with her cat nearby. Her escape is a book she just ordered, a book of love letters between writers and lovers, Virginia Woolf and Vita Sackville West.
5: I think the romantic part of me, I really like, find it beautiful, you know, that two people could write to each other in letters and like wait for the letter and respond to it. And I have a fascination for like correspondence. There's a French word, epistolaire. I found it so so beautiful, the writings between these two like the way they can be at the same time so transparent in a way and hidden
0: They were women in love at a time when it was really impossible for two women to love openly and Sandra, she's all in with Vita and Virginia, but in her own love life, there is a lot less happening She's in her 30s and has been single for about a year She has
5: flirted with a few women but nothing to get excited about It was disappointing because, you know, you have hopes and sometimes you think that there's a connection and then you realize there's actually no connection. I said to myself, okay, let's find some distraction. So finding distraction can only go two ways, like whether you step out and you meet other people or whether you do it through and behind a screen. So I went for option two, under the cover of a, of a bed or on the couch with, with a tea or anything that could make it uh, more convenient and more relaxed.
0: Pretty soon, the book of love letters is set aside, and all Sandra is doing is scrolling through online dating apps.
5: I took the BlackBerry in bed, next to my bed, and I was hooked on these applications Checking out the profiles of people, of women, like where they're coming from, their interests. But nothing is hitting until... And I remember it was a snowshoeing day with a friend of mine and we were snowshoeing and I started receiving like notification messages. And we were kind of like, oh wow, who is that girl? Like already accepting, already uh, starting to text... I saw her name first, Amina Araf. And I was like, oh, this is a very unusual name for Quebec. So that was my first, like, curiosity out of her, her name. She was a brunette with strong, dark eyes. Amina Araf. The profile picture striking.
0: Amina has chin-length hair, an elegant neck, and a mole just right above her left eyebrow. She's smiling shyly and glancing down.
5: She's beautiful. In the first messages, she told me that she was in Damascus. So since the beginning, I knew that she was in Syria. My great-grandmother was born in Syria, in Aleppo. So the fact that she was coming from there was, you know, very cool. It might sound like a small connection,
0: but for Sandra, it means a lot. For a few generations, her family lived in both Egypt and Morocco, before her mom immigrated to France, where Sandra was born.
5: I missed a lot of, you know, the exotic angle that I was raised with and that I was always exposed to. So for me, it was a great package. She had Middle Eastern roots, the perfect English writing. She could express herself very well. She was interested in me. She was single. I always value when people are being honest and true to themselves. So for me, it was really appealing that she had that openness about who she was and at the same time not being afraid of sharing uh, the fact that she was from Syria and gay. So they start chatting. And the more Sandra finds out, the more intrigued she becomes. I found out that she had dual citizenship, U.S. and Syria. Her mom was American and her dad was Syrian. Amina had been living in the United States, but recently moved back to the family home, a sprawling house in Damascus. I actually know where they lived in the neighborhood because she sent me a postal address also once. So I remember putting it in Google Maps and looking it up and seeing where she was living. Sandra looks up everything
0: she can about Damascus, trying to imagine Amina there. She watches tourism videos, and she loves it when Amina paints pictures of the city.
5: For her, it's the smell of jasmine tea that I would totally foresee in Damascus because I experience it when I go to Morocco, you know? So it's always based on, like, the flavors that you taste and the smells that you randomly catch when you walk in the medinas, and I was imagining her there, wandering around the city and also, you know, projecting myself in a city that I actually don't know, but that I started to learn and to know more about through her. And soon the
0: messages are zipping back and forth across the globe
5: could be at work during the day when I have a break or like at lunchtime I was texting till the moment I just like couldn't anymore you know that your eyes is starting to like hurt and it was super super late and as soon as I was waking up in the morning you know I would reach for for the phone opening it and seeing if there's any messages when I didn't find messages I was like also very disappointed you know When
0: Amina doesn't respond right away, it's sometimes because of a power outage, just one result of the chaos in the country in 2011. Amina tells Sandra that she wants to join the revolution and that she wants to document it too,
5: both the protests and her own life as a lesbian in Syria. So she thought to do it all, to start a blog and to put her writings and at the same time report on her day-to-day life in Syria. But Amina's decision to write her blog under her real name terrifies Sandra. I think she already had in her head what she wanted to do. Even if I would have told her, maybe it's uh, not a good idea, maybe you should wait. I don't think it would have changed anything, honestly, because she was the type of personality that was also stubborn. And had a clear idea where she wanted to go and what she wanted to achieve. It's about a month and a half after Amina and Sandra first message
0: one another that Amina publishes her first blog post. And just a heads up, we've asked an actor to read Amina's writing for us.
6: Here I start, and since I am the one writing here, I will begin my way, since of course that's the best way.) <laughs> Bismillah al rahman rahim Which means, in the name of God, the merciful, the compassionate and is the way any account is supposed to begin I set myself a task make sense of the contradictions and explain myself to me That was a clip from Gay Girl
3: Gone from CBC Podcasts. Their team includes Brenna Doldorf and Peggy Sutton. It's hosted, written, and produced by Samira Moyadin, who we just heard from. This is an incredible story. I can't wait to hear it. It's coming out on November 15th. Uh, Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much. That was Samira Moyadin, the host of the latest CBC Podcast, Gay Girl Gone, which launches on November 15th. Like I said, you can find it on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. Serial is a name synonymous with podcasting. For years, their famed reporting has kept true crime fans on the edge of their seats. Their latest season is called The Kids of Rutherford County. It follows the tale of a Tennessee county that had been arresting and illegally jailing hundreds, maybe thousands of children for over a decade. It would take years, but eventually one lawyer and former juvenile delinquent himself asked why. The answer would lead back to a powerful judge the jailer she appointed, and a county that treated this enormous amount of arrests as normal. We'll hear about one of these instances. What started as a friendly basketball game amongst neighborhood kids turned into a small fight. It was recorded, and the video made the rounds amongst other kids, then teachers, and eventually one police officer. That's where we'll pick up this story. Here's host Maribah Knight with more.
1: The reason why Officer Templeton was trying to ID all the kids in the video is because she believed all of them bore some responsibility for the fight, or at least for not stopping it. The two kids doing the actual hitting, she thought they were probably too young to bring charges against. They looked like they were about five or six years old. And in Rutherford County, they generally didn't charge kids under seven. But what about the other kids? The kids standing around, the kids egging it on? Officer Templeton wondered if there was a charge that would apply to all of them. So, relying on the memory of a 10-year-old, Officer Templeton took the list of names given to her by Marie and headed to the county's judicial commissioner's office for guidance on what to charge them all with. In Rutherford County, judicial commissioners are the people who approve charges. At their office, the commissioner searched the state's database. And they found a statute that seemed to fit the bill: Criminal responsibility for conduct of another. Officer Templeton would later say, quote, "I looked at the charge to the best of my ability from my experience was like, "Yeah, that's the charge." The judicial commissioners signed off. Petitions were secured. Word went out. Arrest these kids." As would later be documented in over a dozen interviews with internal affairs investigators, the arrests did not go smoothly.
2: Well, we'll go ahead and start with uh, May 27th, 2016. It is 11 a.m. Sergeant Craig Snyder, Office of Professional Responsibility.
1: In an office at the local police department, Tammy Garrett, the principal at a school called Hobgood Elementary, sat down with two of those investigators.
2: When did you become aware of the Uh, that were going to take place at Hopgood, at your school? Um, The investigation or the arrest? Well, the investigation.
1: Principal Garrett told the investigators that Officer Templeton had shown her the video of the fight on a Wednesday. And by Friday morning, Templeton called to say the police were coming to Hopgood to arrest some girls who were in the video. But right away, Principal Garrett was concerned, partly because the kids Templeton named... Well, Garrett hadn't seen all of them in the video.
2: There were kids that I knew that I didn't see in there, that are good kids at school. That I started thinking, you know, what's going, yeah, what's going on? I didn't see any of those kids. Did she mention how she had identified those those kids? She had talked to the some kids and the parents. Is what she said. And so I thought, well, she's an investigator, not me. Maybe things I didn't know. Still. Principal Garrett
1: was worried. It was her fourth year as principal at Hopgood Elementary, and she'd spent those years working hard to build trust with parents and the kids at her school. She thought it certainly wouldn't help that relationship if she was allowing police to come to the school and arrest kids. But she believed she didn't have a choice in the matter. Principal Garrett said Officer Templeton assured her the arrests wouldn't be disruptive.
2: She said, I want to promise y'all that they weren't going to be handcuffed and that I'll be there. I'm going to take care of this. It'll be discreet.
1: Garrett told Templeton her preference was that the girls be arrested before school let out. She didn't want a bunch of students in the hallways or the yard or in the bus lines seeing their classmates get taken out by police officers. But as the day wore on, getting closer to school dismissal at 2.30, Officer Templeton still hadn't shown up at Hopgood. Instead, three different police officers came. And that's when things got confusing. Crowded into the assistant principal's office, discussing what to do next, Garrett said one officer in a tactical vest was telling her, go get the kids. But a second officer was telling her, don't go get the kids. That officer seemed to be having second thoughts about the whole thing.
2: So he kept telling me, hey, this is not right. I don't think this is right. What, was he specific with anything? So he said, this is going to blow up. This is going to blow up. You shouldn't do this. This is not right. Meaning the arrest? Uh-huh. And I don't know what to do.
1: The officer telling Principal Garrett not to go get the kids was Chris Williams, In his internal affairs interview, Officer Williams said when he learned what these arrests were about, he was shocked.
7: It was just like, what in the world?
1: He was like, what in the world? Because he'd seen the video of the fight the night before, after Officer Templeton had asked him to check it out. And he remembered when he watched
8: it.
6: I was like, that's the egregious video that you were talking about?
8: And she was like, yeah. And I'm like, well, if you follow
3: any group of kids, they get off the bus home, this is what you're going to see. This is normal behavior for most kids.
1: Then there was this. All the kids in the video were black, and most of the students at Hobgood were black or Latino. Williams, who's also black, said he didn't think Templeton, who's white, was intentionally going after these kids because of their race. But he also said he couldn't help but wonder if something like this would happen at a school that was mostly white. Back in the assistant principal's office, Williams started calling up the chain of command, if not to stop the arrests, at least to slow things down while they got some clarity on the situation.
4: And I'm trying to call someone to, I don't
3: want to say, use common sense, but at least think about what we're doing.
1: The first person Williams talked to was a sergeant, who told him to go forward with the arrests. He then called others to try to get a different answer. He called a lieutenant, who didn't pick up. Then he got through to a major, who essentially told him to just figure it out. Meanwhile, the officer in the room telling Garrett to, yes, go get the kids, was Officer Jeff Carroll. And he was making his own phone calls. Carroll was a patrol officer and a SWAT team member. He declined my interview requests. But in his internal affairs interview, he said, while, quote, nobody likes to arrest kids at school, he had his orders.
2: I have one. Our sergeant tells me to do something as long as I know it's not illegal or in my eyes immoral, I'm going to do it. So who finally said, go get the kids? Uh, Carol. What made you listen to Carol at that point? You said there was they were saying don't do, don't do. Because he never. was probably the more aggressive one, so I went to get him.
1: Principal Garrett got three girls from their classrooms: an 11-year-old, a 10-year-old, and an 8-year-old.
2: As we, as I came up, you know, with the hall with the girls, I was kind of trying to prepare them. I said, "Hey guys, the police are here regarding the video. You're going to have to come to the office with me." Well, the oldest one was telling me, hey, these other two weren't even there. You know, from my me seeing the video, I didn't see them in the video, so I thought maybe she had a pretty legitimate claim. I don't know if that's right. You said or, this was in the hallway? Yeah, as we were walking up down the hall. Okay. She was like, Dr. G, they're not they weren't even there. They weren't even there.
1: One of the girls even had an alibi. She'd been at a pizza party with her basketball team the day of the fight. As Garrett walked the girls into the office, she turned to the cops and said,
2: These two weren't even there. And then Officer Carroll got very aggressive with me. And um, he was like right here in my face. And he pulled out the cuffs and he said, uh, we're going now. We're going now. There's no more talking. We're going now. And I said, but, 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 you know, they she's, they said they weren't even there. And he said, the three times really loud and he had the handcuffs right in my face and he was screaming at me. But he I was scared and I didn't want to go to jail and so um, I backed off. But I was crying and the kids were crying and they were screaming and reaching for me and it was it was it was awful.
1: The other officers in the room don't recall screaming or yelling or Officer Carroll being particularly aggressive. But they do confirm kids were crying, and emotions were running high.
3: From Serial Productions and The New York Times, that was The Kids of Rutherford County. It's hosted by Maribah Knight. Additional reporting is by Ken Armstrong at ProPublica. The show is produced by Daniel Gilmet and Michelle Navarro. For many, Toys R Us is one of the enduring memories of childhood, a huge superstore full of toys to pique every interest, what's not to love? But by 2018, the company had filed for bankruptcy. It closed its last U.S. store in 2021, adding another name to the list of big retailers that had been killed by the Internet. In this episode of The Closer, host Amy Keene takes you inside the downfall of the iconic retail chain. She's joined by journalist Lauren Hirsch. In this clip, we're going to learn about the initial dominance Toys R Us had over the market. Let's listen.
6: Toys R Us is kind of the most special thing about it was his relationship with the toy companies. And so what he was able to do was he got exclusives. He got toy companies to promise they would only sell certain products in its stores. And that kind of made it such that if you wanted a certain toy, you you had to go to Toys R Us. So he took these really big box stores, these large chunks of real estate, and grew them across the country. And so all of a sudden, Toys R Us became this omnipresent experience throughout the country, and if you wanted a toy, you knew the first place that you had to go was Toys R Us.
9: Lazarus steered the company through a decades-long expansion, at home and abroad. It was operating in 35 countries at its peak. He launched a sister brand, Babies R Us, took the company public, and by the early 90s, he created a proper toy empire that beat out just about any other toy retailer. It was the category killer. By 1994, though, Lazarus was in his 70s and ready to retire. He stayed on the board as chairman for four
6: more years, and his successor was picked. There was no immediate CEO that followed him that had the same kind of relationships, the same kind of, you know, understanding of the business.
9: The business had been Lazarus's imagination brought to life.
6: Even an experienced CEO couldn't quite replicate that. The industry all of a sudden started to really change. Obviously, the first thing we think of is e-commerce. You had the dot-com boom. The dot-com boom put a lot of pressure on stores like Toys R Us
9: to adapt their in-store offerings for an online crowd. So in response, in 2000, Toys R Us signed a first-of-its-kind deal with Amazon to sell toys online. But the relationship quickly dissolved over a difference of opinion on just how exclusive the arrangement was. And it ended in a lengthy and expensive legal battle.
6: So not only did that deal go awry, it also became a huge distraction for the company.
9: It was a distraction from another equally big threat that had been growing since the
6: mid-90s, the
9: rise of big box stores like Walmart and Target.
6: Their big strength was their ability to sell products on the cheap. And so all of the sudden, they were able to fight Toys R Us on the price if it's toys.
9: Yeah, Lauren, I'm imagining, you know, Saturday morning, a parent's got errands to run. They've promised a little whomever that he or she could pick out a toy. But that parent could also pick up toilet paper, maybe some groceries if they did it all at Walmart.
6: So what Walmart was super smart on is it knew that if it could use a toy to get you into its store, it could get you to shop for a million other things. And what Toys R Us was supposed to do in response to that learning from Walmart was make its store a place where you still had to go because it's this wonderful, magical experience. But the problem was Toys R Us had gotten so big and so powerful, and it really hadn't needed to invest in its stores in that way to become so big and powerful that it didn't really realize times had changed, it just never reacted. And so therefore, it never really gave shoppers sufficient reason to go there versus Walmart, where not only could you pick up five pieces of products, but the toy is probably going to be cheaper. And
9: in resting on the strengths of what the Toys R Us brand once was, the business lost sight of its customers, both the toy makers and the people coming into the store to buy a toy.
6: First, it just didn't have those same kind of relationships that Lazarus worked really hard to foster. You know, those relationships are dinners, they're calls, they're, you know, how's your son doing? It didn't have that. And it didn't invest. It it took its customers for granted. The other element, frankly, is it had a lot of men in management. Its prime customers were women shopping for their kids. And I would speak to former employees who would say, you know, they kind of didn't get it. All of this
9: added up to years of grim earnings. And by the early 2000s, investors on Wall Street were souring on the company.
6: Its stock had dropped. You know, investors were worried about its competition that it was seeing from the big box stores. They weren't convinced that it really had kind of a strong future ahead. And it was, frankly, flailing. It had lost its way. It was still this iconic store. It was still omnipresent. But it wasn't as, you know, almost deductive as it had once been. And and that became a real challenge for the store.
9: A challenge for Toys R Us, but it was an opportunity for a trio of investors. In 2005, three firms, KKR, Bain Capital, and the real estate investment trust company Vornado, put together $6.6 billion to take the toy company private.
6: There was almost kind of a ritualistic game plan that private equity firms did when it came to retailers. One was... Back in those days, the only way a retailer can grow is by more stores. So you buy a company with a great brand and you say, Great, a really easy way to grow sales is to simply build more stores. So that's plan number one. Plan number two is there's real estate, and real estate can be very valuable. At the time, the real estate industry was very different. Malls were considered to be a valuable place for real estate because people still went to malls. So the two private equity firms in Enfernado, they wanted to grow the sales, monetize the real estate, and yes, do what every private equity firm does, which is slash costs all that it can, and then reap the rewards on the other side. Another feature of these deals, debt,
9: often lots of debt. Private equity investors will finance the takeover by raising debt secured by the assets of the company they're buying. But instead of assuming that debt themselves, the target company will hold that liability. The idea is that as you turn around the struggling company, the company pays down the debt, and then you, the investor, reap the upside when you either sell the company or take it public. The downside, though, is that the cost of servicing that debt is often an expensive burden for the company trying to write itself. And in the case of Toys R Us, KKR, Bain, and Vornado added about $5 billion in debt to the company through this takeover. So instead of investing in e-commerce or improving the in-store experience, Toys R Us now had to pay down
6: this debt. I actually spoke to someone who quit shortly after the deal was signed because he was like, there's just no way a company is going to be able to survive this much debt on this profitability. This debt became effectively an albatross on the company. It couldn't make any of the investments that it needed to do to respond to the big box retailers like Walmart. It couldn't respond to Amazon. Right. And that was because
9: any available cash that the company did have, most of that available cash was going to servicing that debt, which I think at one point was a cost of about $400 million a year.
6: Yeah. And the problem is it becomes this, you know, you're just circling the drain, right? You're just trying to survive enough to pay the debt. You don't have any capacity to think about what it means, you know, what it means to actually grow.
9: Meanwhile, the kids the business depended on, the kids Charles Lazarus had convinced needed toys, they were also changing.
6: So there was this really fascinating dynamic where effectively kids became older, younger. That sounds odd, but what that means is kids grew out of toys faster there were video games there were other things to do and so that frankly disrupted like the business model itself your core customers aging out much faster it was an existential moment for the business
9: how does it respond to this generation of kids how does it better serve their parents or the people shopping for them online and how does it do all of this while paying down hundreds of millions of dollars of debt each year
3: From PRX and Project Brazen, that was a clip from The Closer. It's hosted by Amy Keene and produced by Isabel Kirby McGowan and Ben Walsh. Their guest in that episode was Lauren Hirsch.
4: I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real.
2: Limited
1: Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other.
2: There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I trust him. What?
3: You're staring at me like I should say something, but I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real.
0: You understand?
1: Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you
7: get your podcasts.
3: Our next story begins in Syria in 2018. Amidst the chaos of war, a two-year-old named Salmon disappears. Meanwhile in London, Salman's grandfather desperately searches for answers. In, in the podcast Bloodlines from the BBC and CBC podcast, host Poonam Taneja travels to Syria to find out what happened to Salman and the thousands of children like him. We'll hear Poonam speaking with Salman's grandfather Ash. With more, here's Bloodlines.
7: Well, I just just want him back home and just to just to be a, a normal grandparent to him, to love him, cater for him. and
8: That's Salman's grandfather, Ash. He's a bus driver from East London. This is from a TV interview with him shortly after the videos and photos of Salman stopped arriving. What is your concern at the moment about Salman?
7: Uh, concern is locating him um, and finding out his well-being, where he is, if he's by himself, unaccompanied.
8: At the time, coalition forces were bombing the last remaining territory IS held in Syria, exactly where Ash believed Sulman and his mother Aisha were. Ash was certain Sulman was still alive.
7: He could be lying injured in hospital bed or a camp or whatever.
8: Ash was worried his grandson was lost in one of the desert prison camps. At the time, they were filling up with orphans and widows. And so back in London, he was doing everything he could to get people to care and to help him find his grandson.
7: You know, accessing the innocent children. So it's basically... I've
8: covered IS for the BBC for the past decade. Stories of young people from the UK who travelled to the region and joined the group. And I was one of the first to report on Ash's story, Salman's story. It got some play for a while. This cute kid lost in the chaos of war. A few papers picked it up. But interest whittled away pretty quickly. There just wasn't much sympathy for Ash or his missing grandson. And so, before long, the world moved on. And actually, most of Ash's family moved on too. But Ash, Ash never did. Hey, hi, Ash.
7: Hello, good to meet you again.
8: How are you?
7: I'm good to see you again.
8: Are you comfortable being here and, and chatting here? It's a bit of a secluded park. It's quiet, though. Yeah, yeah, take a seat. It's a Friday night in mid-November 2022. Ash looks older, more tired than I remember. The park we're meeting is cold and eerie. Meeting here, on a bench in the dark, is Ash's idea. He doesn't want his wife, or anyone in his family, to know. How have you been?
7: I've been Good. I've been good, just waiting for some good news to come through.
8: Ash has his phone in his hand. And soon enough, he's showing me photos of Sulman. Salman in traditional Arab dress, another in a blue T-shirt with a shark on it. He's a smiley, happy kid. But then Ash swipes to another photo. Salman's smile is gone. There's a bandage on his forehead. He looks scared and emaciated. This That's is the one. one I have, yeah. Yeah,
7: and then there's another
8: one. I've seen it before. I've seen most of these photos before. The videos, too. Ash has shared them with me. But today, there's one I haven't seen.
7: Where's the donkey go? He's got the Where did it go? No, didn't go
2: to Jannah. Where's
4: Where's
2: Baba? Baba, open.
8: Salman, look at me. Where did the donkey go? Hmm?
6: Where did the donkey go? Where did it go? Jannah. No, it didn't go to Jannah. Where's
1: Baba?
7: Baba in Jannah.
8: Salman is lying in a cot, draped with a mosquito net. And what he's saying is that Baba, his father, Ash's son, is in Jannah. Jannah is paradise in Islam, the afterlife.
7: Really, Papa, nah. really, Papa, nah. Papa, nah. Papa. <laughs> when
8: you look at that. How do you feel?
7: Yeah, that's my son's son, and he looks exactly like him.
8: Ash's son, Sulman's father, was named Haroon. Haroon grew up here in East London. Right here, in fact, he played in this park as a boy.
7: We used to come here. We'd done rollerblading here. We'd done play tennis here. And generally, yeah, like on hot days, we'd have ice cream. I remember when they were really young.
8: But in 2013, Haroon secretly oh, I... left the UK for Syria, where he ended up fighting for IS. He also met Aisha, who had travelled there from Canada. They married, and Aisha gave birth to Salman in 2016. Later that year, Haroon was killed by a sniper in Syria. He was 21. No. It is not small, it's is... Ash and his wife tried to convince Aisha to leave Syria with Salman, but she didn't. I've covered a lot of stories about British citizens who've become foreign fighters. But the Brits who left the Syria and Iraq to live under IS, it was like nothing I'd seen before, nothing anyone had seen. IS had this knack this savvy ability to sell the idea of a perfect Islamic utopia. And it appealed to a lot of young men, but also a lot of young women, and sometimes even entire families. When we first met back in 2019, it was about February, March, I think, and it had just been recently that you'd lost touch with your grandson, Salman. Yeah. So I remember chatting to you and you were convinced at that time that Salman was alive. Yeah. What about now?
7: Um, so the thing is, until somebody says otherwise, nobody stated, shown a body. Yeah, that's proof. And that's clear cut to say, well, you know what, all your efforts... They're gonna be in vain. But we've not come to that stage yet.
8: But time has gone on. Do you yeah. not think that if he was alive you would have known by now?
7: Well the thing is, the reality is I don't really know. i will accept it if somebody gives me clear cut proof. Up until then, you live in hope. When you have ambiguity, it's it's a chance. It's not 100%, it's not zero, there is a chance. So you're living on that chance. And, and other children have been rescued, that's factual. So that's kind of like supporting the chance that you're willing to take, because that's your blood. And you know you do anything and everything for your blood. From
3: BBC Sounds and CBC Podcasts, that was Bloodlines. The series was created and reported by Poonam Tanasia. Their team includes Fiona Woods, Alina Ghosh, Juwan Abdi, Michelle Shepard, Fahad Fatah, Damon Fairless, James Cook, and Julia Whitman. The Victorian-era novel Around the World in 80 Days by Jules Verne tried to imagine what it might be like to travel the globe. At the time, to travel around the world so fast seemed impossible. But less than 20 years later, two female journalists actually did it. In 1889, Nellie Bly took off from New York City. Elizabeth Bisland would quickly follow and what ensued was a race to get back to New York in under 80 days. In A Race Around the World, storyteller and travel writer Adrian Bain brings Nellie Bly and Elizabeth Bislin's experiences to life, and she impacts their whirlwind adventure during a time when women had no rights. In this clip, we'll learn about how Nellie Bly got her start as a journalist. Let's take a listen.
4: It's an understatement to say that being a female journalist was rare back then. Only 2% of journalists were women at the time. And 99% of those female journalists reported on women's issues. So sorry, not voting rights or the suffrage movement or God forbid birth control. Most lady writers are confined to the home sphere. That is where they worked and what they wrote about. Female writers wrote about homesteading, recipes, and high-society fashion. But Nellie is not interested in any of that. Instead, Nellie decides to step out of the suffocating box of the women's sphere and do journalism, which she has a natural talent for. She is exceptional at making others comfortable enough to talk to her, And she uses her new platform for good. In her articles for the Pittsburgh Dispatch, she advocates for poor women and demands they get more resources. She goes undercover as a female factory worker and writes about local corruption. She pitches herself to go on a hot air balloon ride with Joseph Pulitzer of the New York World newspaper. Sadly, She never hears a reply. Nellie works night and day, constantly looking for a better story. She works so hard, she becomes a staple reporter at the Pittsburgh Dispatch and even charms Erasmus into a little friendship. This is everything I have wanted to do. I can do this for the rest of my life. And she wants to go as far as she can. Like when she hears that a one-way train can bring her straight down to Mexico City. That's a spectacular idea. Nellie rushes into Mason's office the next day and pitches her idea. I'll travel south of the border and write about my experiences. Mason peers down his glasses and tells her that she is mad. Nellie. Have you lost your mind? Traveling to Mexico? It's far too dangerous for a woman. Why, even for the bravest American man. Well, just think about all that money you could make if you sent a woman, like myself, down to Mexico. (sighs) And soon enough, Nellie finds herself on a ride down to the modern heart of the Aztec Empire with her mom. Nellie stares out the window and sees the thick Appalachian trees begin to thin out. The air gets hotter and the sun gets brighter. Once she's in Mexico City, the dense industry fog lifts and Nellie breathes easy. She is fascinated by the jungle foliage, the prickly cactuses, the stretching palm trees, and the bushy Mexican cypresses. There's endless music on the streets, outdoor markets selling a rainbow of fruits and vegetables she's never heard of. Brujas peddle their remedies next to the butcher. Nelly falls in love with Mexico City like it is a person. She notices all of its textures and subtleties. For five months, Nellie brings the readers of the Pittsburgh Dispatch stories about theater, street music, tombs, bullfighting, and festivals. She diffuses the stereotypes around Mexico and writes about how kind and hardworking the locals are. And she talks about how safe it is for an American woman traveling alone. The free American girl can accommodate herself to circumstances without the aid of a man. So she starts sifting through what she really wants out of life and begins to envision her full potential. My life can be full of adventures if I just dig deeper into my work. I want to open the world like a mango and let the juice run down my face she gets a taste of the world beyond Pittsburgh. How on earth can I get more of this? When Nellie returns to the States, she knows something's gotta give. She needs a bigger challenge. So when Nellie comes into the office of the Pittsburgh dispatch, she tells Erasmus Wilson her four goals in life. One, to work for a New York newspaper, Two, to reform the world. Three, to fall in love. And four, to marry a millionaire. She believes she can accomplish anything with her new mantra. Energy rightly applied and directed will accomplish anything. So she has to move to New York in order to start striking some of these goals off her list. And one day in April of 1887, she didn't come into work. All that's left behind is a note on Erasmus's desk. I am off for New York. Look out for me. Bly. Adios, muchachos.
3: That was A Race Around the World, based on the true adventures of Nellie Bly and Elizabeth Bisland. It's hosted, written, edited, and produced by Adrian Bain, with editorial consulting from Sam Dingman. And that brings us to the end. Podcast playlist is Kelsey Cueva, Oliver Thompson, and Julian Uzielli, with technical support by Emily Chiarvezio. Our senior producer is Kate Evans. Our executive producer is Cecil Fernandez. I'm Leah Simone Bowen. Thanks for listening.